From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Ra'e. This week, Rabbi Leon Morris discusses Ra'e. Rabbi Leon Morris is the president of the Pardes Institute. And now, Rabbi Leon Morris. We sometimes place people in two diametrically opposed categories, idealists and realists, dreamers and pragmatists. There are those who speak of the world as we wish it were, and others who see the world as it is. But perhaps the world is not divided in such a stark way, and maybe the healthiest and most productive perspective is to be a person who's able to balance both, to dream and to be pragmatic, to be simultaneously an idealist and a realist. In its assessment of poverty and in its mandate to eliminate it, the Torah includes two seemingly contradictory statements fewer than 10 verses apart in this week's parashah, parashat re'eh. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, the Torah states, Ephes ki lo b'cha evyon, ki Adonai ba'aretz asher Adonai lohecha noten lecha nachala l'rishta. There shall be no needy among you, since the Eternal your God will bless you in the land that the Eternal your God is giving you as a hereditary portion. The Torah proceeds immediately to speak about what to do if, however, there is a needy person among you. Ki if, however, there is a needy person among you, one of your kinsmen in any of your settlements in the land that the Eternal your God is giving you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsperson. This shift reaches a climax in verse 11. Ki lo yechdal evyon mekerev haaretz al kein anochi mitzavcha lemor patoach tiftach et yadcha laachicha laaniecha uleevyoncha baartzecha. For there will never cease to be needy ones in your land. Which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. How are we to understand this? Verse 4 tells us there shall be no poverty in the land. And verse 11 says there will never cease to be poverty in the land. Perhaps the Torah is trying to cultivate a complex religious personality that is capable of balancing these two aspects. Someone who can live simultaneously in the world of ideals as well as in the real world. There shall be no needy among you is the guiding statement of someone who can dream big and keep his or her eyes on the prize. There will never cease to be needy ones is the roadmap for making things happen under less than perfect conditions, and understanding that real change in the world is incremental. We need something to aspire to, in this case, a world without poverty. 
but we also need a practical approach in the interim. A messianic vision of how the world should look is fine. It's even essential. But the danger of messianism is its assertion that the fulfillment of those promises have already arrived. To quote Franz Kafka, the Messiah will come only when he is no longer necessary. He will come only on the day after his arrival. He will come not on the last day, but on the very last. This is a delicate balance, figuring out how to hold on to both the ideal and the real. And it's this balance that allows us to recalibrate the original plan, and it inspires us to devise a mid-course correction and to reassess based on how a solution is being implemented. With the issue of poverty, the Torah does exactly that. The verses just prior to those that we discussed the two competing ideas about poverty in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. Just before that, at the beginning of Parak Tetvav, chapter 15, we read about the aspect of the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, that carries with it the remission of debts. Miketz sheva shanim ta'aseh Shemitah. Every seventh year, you shall practice the remission of debts. The sabbatical year with its forgiveness of debts underscores in this Torah portion uh, the attempt to create a system of distributive justice. But the Torah itself sees how its goals might be undermined and warns against this. The Torah says, beware lest you harbor the base thought. The seventh year, the year of remission is approaching. So you are mean to your needy kinsman and give him nothing. He will cry out to the eternal against you and you will incur guilt. And what the Torah saw as a potential distortion of the ideals undergirding the sabbatical year actually comes to be realized. Lenders refused to loan money to poor people as the sabbatical year approached. And once the remission of debts ended up those ended up hurting those to whom it was intended as help a new solution needed to be put forward in order to save the spirit of the law the rabbis uprooted the letter of the law by establishing the prose bull mishnah shvi'it uh, chapter 10, verse uh, Mishnah 3, when Hillel the elder saw that the people refrained from giving loans to one another and transgressed what was written in the Torah, beware that you harbor the base thought, Hillel ordained the prose bull. The prose bull is a legal fiction by which people transfer the responsibility for their personal loans to the court. So since the court is not an individual lender, it is permitted to collect repayment during or after the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. The prose bull, in a sense, is an acknowledgement that we cannot live in a world of ideals and aspirations alone. Indeed, it is irresponsible and immoral to do so. 
The prose bull allows the promise of the sabbatical year's remission of debts to remain on the books to represent what one day may be possible. But in the meantime, the poor should not bear the burden for the enormous gap that exists between our intentions and our reality. Interim solutions must be found that, while not idyllic, allow for greater good. The economist Jeffrey Sachs, in his introduction to his groundbreaking book, The End of Poverty, states, This book is about ending poverty in our time. It is not a forecast. I am not predicting what will happen, only explaining what can happen. Rashi, the preeminent medieval biblical commentator, reconciles the two seemingly contradictory verses from our parashah that we started with in this way. There shall be no needy among you applies when we do God's will. And there shall never cease to be needy ones in your land applies when we do not. Perhaps we might understand God's will as a process that requires brain power, creativity, ingenuity, and inspiration. Sachs concludes his book with the famous quotation from Robert F. Kennedy, let no one be discouraged by the belief that there is nothing one man or one woman can do against the enormous array of the world's ills. Few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events, and in the total of all those acts will be written the history of this generation. The good life requires of us an ability to live simultaneously in the world of aspirations and in the here and now. This notion that we want to appreciate the tension and also the complementary nature of the ideal and the real, the aspirational, and the reality of where we are now, is reflected in a completely different context in our parasha as well, namely with regard to a place. In the opening verses of our parasha, one is struck by the way in which there is a repeated motif of Hamakom Asher Yivchar Hashem, the place that the Eternal will choose. In verse 5, verse 11, and verse 15, this repetition underscores the importance of unifying the nation around a single sacred space designated by God. That phrase, Hamakom Asher Yivchar Hashem, is repeated 15 times in the 14 chapters of Sefer Devarim, beginning with this one. Ultimately, this place, this makom asher yivchar Hashem, will be identified as Jerusalem. The first of these references has within it some wording that addresses itself to this theme that we're exploring, this gap between the ideal and the real and the need to hold both. Aki im el hamakom asher yivchar Adonai Elohechem mikol shivtechem lasum et shemo sham l'shichno tidrushu uvata shama. But look only to the site that the Eternal your God will choose amidst all your tribes as his habitation to establish his name there. There you are to go. 
There are different ways to read these last few words of this pasuk. Lishichno tidrushu uvata shama. Instead of lishichno as as his habitation, it could be read as the Shekhinah, the divine presence you must seek out and go there. Lishichno tidrushu uvata shama. Rabbi Menachem Liebtag writes, God will only show us the site if we look for it. This hide-and-seek type of relationship is reflective of every divine encounter. God is found by those who search for him. Only when Am Yisrael as a nation begins a serious search for God will God show them the proper location. That search for God and the notion that an entire nation would be on a serious search for God is an ideal, an aspiration. That ideal spans the entire Torah and much of the entire Tanakh. When David becomes king over Israel, he calls for the ark to be brought to the city of David, Jerusalem. David said to the entire assembly, this is from 1 Chronicles chapter 13, if you approve and if the Lord our God concurs, let us send far and wide to our remaining kinsmen throughout the territories of Israel, including the priests and the Levites in the towns where they have pastured lands, that they should gather together to us. Vinaseba et Aron Elohenu Elenu, Kilo Dirashnuhu Bime Shaul, in order to transfer the ark of our God to us. Because throughout the days of Saul, we paid no regard to it. Ki lo dirashnuhu, they didn't seek it out, but I am, and we are seeking it out, says David. That ideal of what Jerusalem can be is expressed in the prayer of Shlomo HaMelech, of Solomon, David's son, who actually builds the temple. His opening prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant and for his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place which you have said my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer which your servant shall make toward this place, and listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and may you hear in heaven your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. Jerusalem, then, is established by David through the aspiration of a people in search of God. And the temple is built by Solomon as an aspiration that God will hear their prayers and forgive them. The aspirational, ideal quality of Jerusalem is developed throughout Nach, throughout the prophets and writings. The reality is nonetheless inevitable. The first temple and Jerusalem are destroyed because of idol worship. As we read in Echa Lamentations, Jerusalem has sinned and therefore she has become disgraced. 
When the second temple is about to be rebuilt, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, offers once again that ideal. Ki amar Adonai shavti el tzion v'shachanti betoch Yerushalayim. And thus says the eternal life, return to Zion and I will dwell in Jerusalem. V'nikra Yerushalayim ir ha'emet v'har Adonai tzavaot Har HaKadosh. Jerusalem will be called the city of faithfulness or of truth and the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. The tension between Jerusalem, the ideal and the real continues back and forth through the Tanakh and also through rabbinic literature. So much so that the rabbis give birth to the notion that there are actually two Jerusalems. There is Yerushalayim Shalmata, the earthly realistic Jerusalem, and there is Yerushalayim Shalmala, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem on high, the Jerusalem of our ideals. And we are asked to hold on to the aspiration of Yerushalayim Shalmala, even as we address the very real and urgent issues that arise in Yerushalayim Shalmata. And the rabbis themselves try to master the ability of balancing both. The gap between the ideal Jerusalem and the real Jerusalem is disturbing to them and becomes a source of religious instruction and ethical indictment. One example of this gap plays out in Masechet Yoma in the Talmud, uh, in which the, uh, the Talmud brings a, uh, a brita that extends or offers a more serious version of a Mishnah in which one Kohen pushes another to fight for the, uh, to compete for the privilege of clearing off the ashes from the altar, Trumat Hadeshen. And the more violent version that occurs in the Gemara brings this Brita in which it happened that there were two Kohanim and that both of them were even as they ran and ascended the ramp. And when one of them came within four amot of the altar before his fellow, the second one took a knife and drove it into his fellow Kohen's heart. Rabbi Tzadok stood on the steps of the hall and cried, listen, it says with regard to the Egla Rufa, when there is a corpse found between two cities, if one is found slain in the land which the Lord your God gives to you to possess and it is not known who has slain him, then your elders and your judges shall come forth and they shall measure the distance to the cities which are around him who is slain. And Rabbi Tzadok says, as for us, who has the responsibility to bring a heifer whose neck will be broken? Does the responsibility fall upon the residents of the city of Jerusalem or upon the Kohanim, the priests who guard the temple's courtyards? His, her, his point is heard and understood. And the Gemara says, upon hearing this, all the people burst out crying. And then the story gets even worse in which the father of the deceased Kohen comes and is concerned with the purity of the knife in which his son was stabbed and says, pull out the knife now because while he's still alive, the knife will not become tameh, it will not become ritually impure. And this heartbreaking story 
comes to tell us, and the Gemara is specific uh, in bringing this Brita ends with, uh, this comes to teach you that they considered the purity of vessels to be more serious than murder. And they quote uh, from Second Kings, Minashe also shed very much innocent blood until he filled Jerusalem from end to end with it. Here is the counterpoint in the Gemara to the notion of Yerushalayim Shalmala, the Jerusalem of heaven, the Jerusalem of our ideals. And then you have examples uh, in rabbinic literature that in one passage balance the ideal and the real. Avot de Rabbi Natan. There are 10 measures of beauty in the world, nine in Jerusalem and one in the rest of the world. There are 10 measures of suffering in the world, nine in Jerusalem and one in the rest of the world. There are 10 measures of might in the world, nine in Jerusalem, one in the rest of the world. There are 10 measures of wisdom in the world. There are 10 measures of hypocrisy in the world, nine in Jerusalem and one in the rest of the world. There are 10 measures of Torah in the world, nine in Jerusalem and one in the rest of the world. With regard to poverty and with regard to the Shemitah, we found ways to keep faith with the dream and aspiration on the one hand and to recognize the reality and respond to that reality in ways that are helpful, productive, and relevant. And so too with the notion of Jerusalem as a holy place, as Hamakoma Sher Yivhar Hashem, we have been balancing the ideal and the real for 3,000 years. What a privilege. And what an enormous challenge that balance is in our time. We have the ideal described by the psalmist in Psalm 122, Yerushalayim habenuyah ki'ir shechubra yachdav, a Jerusalem built up, a city knit together, to which the rabbis understood this less as a description of the architecture, of the compact nature of how close the houses together are in Jerusalem. They read Ki'ir Shechubrala Yachdav as a city that makes all of Israel Chaverim, of friends. Uh, Isaiah describes, of course, ki mitzion Torah udvar Hashem Yerushalayim, uh, that the Torah will go forth from Zion, the word of God from Jerusalem. And then there is Jerusalem, the real, Yerushalayim Shalmata. The tension between Jewish and Arab residents, the tension among the various Jewish communities that live here, enormous economic disparities among the population. Jerusalem is the poorest city in Israel. It's also the most expensive real estate in Israel with a shortage of affordable housing. Yehuda Amichai, the poet laureate of Jerusalem, uh, has a poem entitled Jerusalem is a Merry-Go-Round. And he concludes this wonderful poem by writing, Jerusalem is a seesaw. Sometimes I dip down into past generations and sometimes I rise skywards and then yell like a child yelling, his legs swinging way up. I want to get off, dad. I want to get off, dad. Help me off. And that's how all the holy men ascend to heaven, 
like children shouting, Father, I want to stay up here. Father, don't get me down. Our Father, our King, Avinu Malkenu, leave us up here, Avinu Malkenu. Not only is Jerusalem like a seesaw, but a life lived in the furtive, creative, and productive tension between the ideal and the real, between dreaming and pragmatism, a life like this is also like a seesaw. When we experience glimpses of the ideal, when we witness the vulnerable and needy being served, or the kindness of strangers on the streets of Jerusalem, we want to shout, I want to stay up here. But like a seesaw, gravity forces us back down and reminds us that we have work to do and that the promise of going back up or rising skyward is largely dependent on us, on living our lives in the real, even as we keep seeking and searching for the dream and for the ideal. L'shichno tidrushu uvatashama, seek out God's presence and you will arrive. This is a message from our parasha, and it's also a powerful message for Rosh Chodesh Elul, which we also mark this Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom and Chodesh Tov from Pardes in Jerusalem. Thank you, Rabbi Morris. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Thank you.